Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. Today we have an exciting thing to share with you. We interviewed Bert Burleson, the university chaplain at Baylor University, on um, his journey from being uh, just an average evangelical pastor to someone who takes patristic theology and uh, patristic liturgy seriously and how that shaped and formed him both as a minister and a person. Before we get into the interview, though, we want to encourage you to check out patristicapress.com. That is how this podcast is able to be brought to you for all of its freeness. So check out, there are several books there, such as my book, Separation of Church and State. Uh, My books, among them, is Scripture Revisited, which is about what is a theology of scripture um, that recognizes the authoritativeness of church tradition, but not in a Catholic way. Ooh. Edgy, yeah. Uh, or check out the Reformation podcast. I also host that with our friend Jake Robbie. Um, you can get a few of our books for free on the patristicpress.com slash free uh, part of the site in ebook format, just because we like giving out free stuff. We'd also like to encourage you to rate and review us on your preferred podcast app, but especially iTunes, because that's just the way the world is right now. They're the number one place for us to get recognized as a podcast. So if you like us, please take a very short amount of time to give us a couple stars, more than a couple, and write a review for us. In fact, we're going to read some reviews so that you can get excited about what other people think about us. Someone named SFWill09 says, If you ever had any interest in reading or learning about the Church Fathers but don't know where to start, start here. I love this podcast. It's well-produced, well-researched, and has some nice dry humor and great alcohol recommendations. Thank you, SFWill09. And, uh... John17893 says, best podcast about misogynistic... Old dead guys. Old dead guys. Yeah, it cuts off on here. Uh, An open theist and a Calvinist talk about the church fathers. What can be better? Question mark. And we say, nothing can be better. Yeah. So, check us out on Twitter and Facebook where you can get updates on what we're doing and when our new podcast episodes come out. And tell us uh, what you want to hear about, because we're always excited to make things uh, that you actually want to learn about, but don't have time to go read for yourself. Yeah, send us your questions and recommendations, and uh, we will take them seriously. Without further ado, here is our interview. To start with, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, who you are? So I'm Bert Burleson, and I'm the university chaplain and dean of spiritual life here at Baylor. And I've been in this role for 11 years. Prior to that, I was a pastor of a church here in Waco, Dayspring Baptist Church. Prior to that, I was a youth minister and a student minister and a pastoral counselor, uh, mostly in, in Houston, and really had... Uh, uh, projected that one of these days I would be a pastoral therapist. That's kind of the road I was going down as I was beginning to discover some things that I really hadn't been exposed to as a a young adult in seminary first time around. So, Ken, where did you go to seminary? What was your theological training like? Can you say Uh, more about the direction of pastoral counseling? Yeah, I went to you know, went to undergrad here at Baylor, and it was really uh, sort of the default to go to Southwestern. Uh, I uh, followed some friends up there in part because I was dating somebody here at Baylor, and it's like, you know, I'm not going to even think about going too far because I, we were pretty serious. Uh, but I also was not a religion major at Baylor, and the difficulty there is that I didn't have conversation partners about what the next step ought to be. Hmm. And in addition to that, I tend to be the kind of guy that sits on the back row a little bit. Uh, and and uh, I needed in that time a mentor, and I didn't have one. Somebody that would have said, well, you don't have to go there. You know, there are a number of places you could go. And, of course, then that was 
sort of the Baptist path, the whole, the war between moderates and fundamentalists was just beginning. And uh, that became the backdrop of my young adulthood. But uh, So I went to Southwestern, and I really didn't belong there in lots of ways. Uh, I, I really had, uh, I couldn't articulate it well, but I had come to, I think, a place where I really wasn't embracing the faith that I had grown up with, but I didn't have any way of talking about that. I was pushing and I was struggling with that and uh, went to Southwestern, which was a fairly conservative place. Part of the the way I navigated that was that I had great friends who were in carpools with me, and we were most of us driving over from Dallas, and so we were in these long car rides, and you know we were reading stuff on our own and, and thinking together, and we were also most of us in youth ministry, so we were doing work together as well, and that sort of kept me, I think, on the path. That's one of the things that. Mm-hmm where I didn't just throw up my hands and say, well, I'll just go be a lawyer or something like that, because I was really in a lot of spiritual, psychological, emotional pain because of this sort of existential, hmm. what's right? What, you know, what do I really think about all these things? In that time, uh, in fact, this is the kind of way this sort of stuff happens. I was belly aching in a, on a carpool ride to seminary. And one of the guys, John Cramp, who was an older guy here at Beta, says to me, you need to go talk to George Gaston. And again, I'm a back row kind of guy. I don't go knocking on doors. But for some reason that day, I just marched myself over. To, he was a pastoral ministry professor. I went over and knocked on his door. Pretty young guy then. He's about 38. And I said, John Cramp told me I needed to come talk to you. That's, that's about what I said. And he said, what are you doing right now? I said, nothing. He said, do you want to go down and get a hamburger at Wendy's or something? I said, yeah. So I went and ate lunch with him and he became my mentor and we're dear friends to this day. Hmm. He eventually, within the next year or so, moved to pastor a church in Houston, called me up and said, I want you to come down here and be the minister to students. And we saddled up and we were on staff together for 11 years. And I raised his children as their youth minister, you know, and he, and he taught me the pastoral tradition, mm-hmm. and he really helped me come to know how to be a pastor. And, and uh, you know, every day I'm doing something where I'm thinking about what he taught me. But there, there, and I'll probably tell a few of them. But there are a bunch of moments like that mm-hmm. where the intersection changed my life and and gave me another sort of okay. There's hope. I can I can stay a Baptist or I can stay. <laughs> In, in ministry, because if he can, I can. Yeah. So so speaking of staying Baptist and moving into pastoral ministry in the Baptist culture, we three of us here are all Baptist. I've been mm-hmm. ba- grew up Southern Baptist, and and we don't have a a very big focus on uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, patristic period reading. The fathers isn't isn't much of a emphasis, if at all. So, right. how did you get into that? What what drew you? What introduced yeah. you to it, and what drew you into it? I, I remember the first time I was still at Southwestern, and this guy I was connected with was a PhD student. I said, "Well, what will you be studying?" He said, "Patristics." And I said, "What's that?" <laughs> yeah, so I was a seminarian, <laughs> and 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 we took systematic theology. We didn't even have to take it. Yeah. It, there was a class or two you could take, but it never it would have occurred to me. So what happened for me was a mixture of some of these, what I think of as holy moments or you know synchronicity or however you think about that providence and hunger on my part. And it begins really when uh, I'm studying and I'm you know I've got all these books on my shelf over here about counseling and I'm reading that every night and I start reading some pastoral care guys, some folks who begin to talk about our deeper tradition and it, and they're referring to spiritual direction and okay, we need to go back to our roots as pastoral counselors. 
It's fine to be psychologist too and study psychopathology and systems theory and but and so you start hearing all sorts of stuff about spiritual direction and that immediately drew me in in addition i was doing my d-man in pastoral care but i i wound up in these classes where i was thinking about liturgy and you know it's not eventually if you're thinking about liturgy you're going to start thinking about how christians have always done this right Hmm. What, what's what's the norm? You know, what why is it that way? So I I really began th- that uh, journey backwards, right, into the tradition, out of doing soul work with people, and you, so you start seeing a few authors pop up here, like Nowen and Richard Foster, and they're quoting Merton, and you begin to realize, okay, there's some other things flowing to us. And I couldn't even set it then like this, but but through a handful of people. I mean, they were just a handful of teachers and writers mm-hmm. that we began to read, not just in Baptist life, but certainly moderate Baptist. You know, Henry Nowen becomes a household mm-hmm. name, and everybody's got a Merton book or two on their shelf. And that's about the time I thought I've got to go try this somewhere. I mean, I got to. I, I don't know what this means, but I I think I'm going to have to pastor. So. That and that creates a bit of a problem because you're 37 and you got kids and are you going to go out to West Texas somewhere and hmm. you know start talking about the contemplative life <laughs> in, ba- in a ba- in First Baptist mule shoe? I mean, what are you going to do? And so I, again, I was I was thinking, what about well, how's this going to work? And I followed that mentor out to Abilene just because he said, come out here and preach to college students, and so I did that for a while. And I was really about thinking, I just got to go back and do the counseling thing. And and Pat Kaiser, Kirk Kaiser's wife, Kirk Kaiser wrote, pass it on. And he was the first employee of Word Records. They had started a church and it was seven families. And uh, I kind of knew it had happened. And uh, he said, would you come preach for us sometime? And I said, well, I'm going on vacation a couple of weeks. And I mean, my, my parents lived down that way. They're glad to. And I mean, it, it was love at first sight. It was like mm-hmm. that, something's going on with these folks. They had a, enough of a background in liturgy and thoughtful faith, but they were really tired of what I would call sort of post, you know, modernity, deconstructing everything all the time, mm-hmm. just, you know, all the stuff that we're yeah. too smart to believe now. And, it, you know, that's kind of my generation that was just into that. Into that. And I was at the place where I realized, and I, I really do have to start believing things too. And, I'm just, mm-hmm. and I had some experiences that, that had were gifts to me. So I, I started talking to this group of people, and they were saying, might you come do this? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. I mean, how would I make a living? And so some things fell together, and I became a pastoral counselor in Waco and became their pastor in 1995 and it I mean it was like a, you know dry erase board that was just empty and I was there 13 years and never once had anybody say why in the world would you do that or why let's don't sing that or I mean I mean not once hmm. but I don't know a pastor ever <laughs> yeah, that's pretty been able to say that. <laughs> and so it was fascinating because in, in some ways I knew where I was going I knew the path I was on, and they were there were things about their experience had, that had, that were resonating with what I was doing, and I was naming their experience some the need to keep church not so driven by programs, and and this idea of being simple. And I'd seen so many people burn out with mm-hmm. church and faith, and so I got there, and uh, there were a couple of things that I was really animated by one was I had discovered narrative preaching so I think I'd always done narrative preaching because I was a youth minister Mm -hmm. you better tell (laughs) you know exegetical preaching does not work at youth camp right I mean so so I was but I I realized it was a thing just like patristics I had no idea what was going on in in homiletics and I, I was pretty jazzed about that and then I had discovered the contemplative tradition, and so I, I was working uh, on that personally and began to think 
how do you do this in the context of a church? And then there's the liturgical thing. Well, what happens is I began to, uh, you know, pursue the contemplative liturgical stuff. And again, in ways that were very serendipitous, uh, I'm actually with the truant person then when that was running the mentoring treadmill. And I did a lot for her. And, and I'm talking about the building. I think we should build at Bay Spring and, uh, had always sort of imagined it in my head. And she said, oh, you need to go up to Lynn Bauman's place. I said, who? Lynn Bauman. Uh, I don't know who that is. You know, what, what's he doing? Well, he's got a retreat center, and he's an Episcopal priest and for, you know, former and retired. He's just a, you know, a guru. So I email him, and he says, yeah, you need to come up here. So so here's what happened in the space of about a week. I have a time set aside to go up there, but I preached my sermon on at day spring on sunday and the guy that was helping me with the music then comes up and he goes my brother gave me this cassette tape it wasn't even in a package it just sounded like something you might like and i said okay let's take it and i get in the truck ready to go up to my friend's place who's in town today <laughs> and i stuck it in and it was richard roar no one had ever, I mean, this was not, no one knew who Richard Rohr was. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a single book. No one was talking about Richard Rohr. And I, so I listened to his tape. He used to do tapes, yeah. All the way <laughs> up to almost a, the Red River. And I get out and I meet this sort of gangly little guy who grew up in fundamentalism, found himself in uh, Iran as a missionary but had this profound kind of experience where his world is enlarged, comes back and studies uh, the, tr- the tradition. You know? hmm. So I'm up there at this retreat center, and he's just saying, well, why don't you read this today? And it, and it might be anything from, you know, a Sufi to... There was a book that, that I have read now three times called Lost Christianity from by Jacob Needleman. Then he gives me this one called Roots of Christian Mysticism by Olivier Clement. And I have three or four of his books now. But but that one was the one where I began to real begin to articulate with the tradition of theology that supported the experience of hmm. of the contemplative life, this direct experience with God. So one night we're sitting there. And the phone rings, and he has this very animated conversation with somebody, and he gets off, and I said, well, who's that, Len? And he said, oh, that was Cynthia Brigeau. You know who Cynthia is? Well, she's written a lot on Centering Prayer. She is a disciple of Thomas Keating's and is the, the, you know, the person who's now carrying that tradition. She's a brilliant medieval scholar and uh, of, you know, a theologian. And she lives off the grid off Maine on an island. <laughs> She's the real deal. That's great. And so the next thing I know, within a few months, I'm at a wisdom school where she's teaching. And uh, being, I was just drinking it. I mean, it was the first time in my life. I was just going, where did this come from? And I'm reading the Gregories and Maximus the Confessor. And I may have told you, I was mad at first. Because I had suffered so much, even as a child, like this, this doesn't work somehow. I need something else, and it was like, you mean I could have been getting some of this? <laughs> this has been around for two thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and I began to introduce it. You know, it changed my preaching almost immediately because prior to that, I was so pastoral. And as a pastoral care guy, and my aim in part was, I just want you to feel better today. Like, you know, <laughs> life's hard. And if I can just connect you with the love of God and grace, you know, that kind of idea. And I do a lot of that still. But all of a sudden, I felt like I had something to teach. <laughs> and it became so fun. I mean, the energy that I felt and as I would be preparing Sermons, and we were doing this thing called lectionary breakfast, which was uh, still going on at Day Spring, where they would read the lectionary text and we would just talk. 
and early in my pastor there, man, I, I was up at midnight on Saturday night trying to, you know, but, but in those years, by Friday at noon, I was typing amen. Hmm. It's like, what, what do I need to leave out? So I stepped into some kind of flow and began exposing the church to it. Uh, and then what happened? Because I was, you know, pretty new to this. And I, I still am. I'm, I'm a scavenger. I mean, you don't have time to become a scholar of this stuff <laughs> if, you're, if you're ministering to people all the time. So what happened was, first seminarians started coming. And then seminarians who were also doing philosophy work. And then PhD students in theology and philosophy. And then here came their professors. <laughs> so now... Now that was a little intimidating, but I had I had these conversation partners hmm. in the room. It was it was so exciting, and people were sitting there saying the same thing that I had said. You mean this has been here all along? Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I became, in some ways, oddly enough, much more doctrinal. But it wasn't, as you know, with the fathers, it has this kind of poetic quality about it. Mm-hmm. Often it's just so beautiful. These people who are also praying are the okay. are the theologians of the day. It's not the Enlightenment concept of you know one scientific proposition built on another scientific yeah. proposition. Yeah. So can you say we have a listener who's pastor who's spending most of her time caring for people going to the hospital or doing administrative tasks or whatever. They don't have time to read all of City of God. All those up there? <laughs> yeah, read all of anti <laughs> I bought them and they look really cool. But they're hard, <laughs> hard to get to. <laughs> for listeners, he's pointing to his shelf, which has all the anti-Nicene and Nicene fathers. <laughs> I occasionally pull one off, but you got to have a couple hours. <laughs> so how, how do you scavenge? And um, how do you do so effectively that would draw it into your preaching but also draw it into your ministry to the to the people around you yeah there there are a few folks out there uh, and i always forget the guy's last name john chrysophagus and olivier clement uh and then have you ever read the illumined heart by any chance Mm-mm. it's oh i'm gonna blank on her name she's a real creative writer she's kind of like a rachel held evans but she's writing about orthodoxy <laughs> Uh, so I found a few folks that I lived with for a, a long time and still do. I mean, I circle back to these books, uh, and I'm not good at hanging on to what I read. Uh, so I, I do think you need to find some people like that, and there are some folks uh, around Baylor, and I don't know if David has written much true. What's David? Well, hi. Yeah. yeah. But Dan Williams has some things like evangelicals in the tradition, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, that I found helpful. Uh, and then there's, I don't have them. I'm going blank on the guy's name. I heard him speak about this in 1997. He used to be a pastoral care guy, and he had this conversion, and he starts reading the Church Fathers. And he was the one that was the editor for the commentary series that... Uh, you know, they look. They take the Book of Mark, but they're going back to to see what the fathers wrote about the early Christian commentary on Scripture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, who's the editor? You remember his name? I don't. I, I used Odin? to. Odin. Yeah, yeah. That's Odin. Odin. Thomas Odin. Odin. I've got a, right? a pastoral care book over there, from Thomas Odin. Interesting. So I I listened to his testimony at Truett, and he's talking about this you know movement he makes from just sort of classic Protestant liberalism you know, as a psychologist, really, counselor, hmm. and he got uh, really drawn into this, and also a shift, and for me as well, I think, to the notion of of the confession of faith that we have and why that matters. And I'll tell you who helped me a lot and gave me a lot of permission here was Brueggemann's book, uh, Creative Word, if you ever come across that. 
So he really is talking about how we know what we know in the various ways the literature in the Old Testament, the forms of literature, are forms of knowing. And he said a, a Christian, a person of faith, a church needs all of that. You need consensus, the Torah. You need prophetic stuff, uh, how you deconstruct and become self-critical. And, and then you need wisdom, literature, the ability to hold these things together. And so I, I, I would have really benefited from that wisdom as a youth minister because it's hard to be a youth minister when you're, you're deconstructing everything all the time. Yeah. And it really helped me uh, move quickly as a pastor to shaping worship based upon these things. It had a liturgical impact on us, too, at Dayspring. Hmm. Can you say a bit more about that, about how you, how patristic theology and writings impacted your worship yeah. specifically? I mean, I, I did get hold of some things and start reading some liturgies, and you begin to realize what's already there. Hmm. And so the question becomes, why is it there? It's not like it's necessarily spelled out in Scripture. Some people would try to do that with Isaiah 6 or something like that. But, you know, that's not necessarily prescriptive. But there's something about the human journey and the human heart that gets revealed to us. And I think that's that was the step for me that was important as a Baptist, where I finally said, uh, it's, it's not solo scriptura and let me explain that right <laughs> so no one so we had this little song did y'all sing this the b-i-b-l-e mm-hmm. yes that's the book for me i stand alone on the mm-hmm. word of god <laughs> so i have a series that i wrote about this uh there's sermons but it was also a conference talk where i said no one stands alone first of all you're not by yourself it's the community's book and 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 Baptists are immature if they say it's just me and my Bible. I'm not saying God won't speak to you. Mm-hmm. But it's never just you and your Bible by yourself. But there's also these other things, and it's unbiblical to acknowledge that to not acknowledge that they're a part of how you come to know the truth of God. So when you take the book of Acts, you see this on every page it's something else. It's like here they're looking back at scripture. Here they're taking a vote. It's like democracy. Over here they're they're having a dream. It's mysticism, you know. And this one, it's it's this ability. It's this personal conscience. I mean, Barnabas stands there with the Apostle Paul and says, "You are wrong." Yeah. And then on the next page, it's do what the apostles tell you to do. <laughs> Go teach what they're teaching. So all that's always there in the church. And for me to begin to see that and have a place then for the tradition being authoritative, whether you're talking about the Trinity, which they got right, and we we just whittled down to something that yeah, everybody just kind of goes, what the heck? You know, I, I believe it. Yeah, sure. But no, <laughs> that, that everybody's a heretic for the most part. <laughs> uh, but, but also liturgy. And this, okay, I don't get to just dismiss this. Uh, you know, I, I no longer get to say I don't care about doing worship that way as a worship leader. Uh, so uh, I didn't. Uh, it would be something I would do if I could go back and do a D man. I would study worship in the early church or something like that. <laughs> but the sense for me was there are patterns here that uh, take us to the holy of holies. <laughs> These are things we really need to do as we move towards intimacy with God and we become prepared to hear from God. And I am still swimming upstream in all sorts of ways because you have, whether you're talking about evangelical contemporary worship, which primarily is uh, a lot of adoration with some blood atonement and an exegetical sermon, or moderate church worship, which got creative and became theme driven in the early eighties. This is yeah. <laughs> and so Get a marketing plan. Well it's yeah, it's like, okay, so you're preaching on stewardship, so we're gonna sing about stewardship, someone's gonna pray about it, and the children's sermon's gonna be about it. Yeah. By the time I get up to preach, it's like, well, I don't know what there's nothing like this. <laughs> so and it ignores what it, that's one problem, but the the real problem is it ignores the need 
that we have as children of God to be grateful and to confess our sins and to remember again and to pray for the world and all the things that the church has always done and confess the faith together. So uh, I've been on a campaign and it's like, it, it's like spitting in the wind. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting, even with very smart folks who are, say, moderates, they, uh, once you kind of paradigm, right? It's, so they'll call me if I'm coming to preach or something. And, uh, so what are you going to preach on? And I'll say, well, you know, I'm going to do this, but what I'd really, you know, I'd, I'd really like for you to just to prepare them to hear rather than to try to anticipate what I'm going to say. Mm. And it doesn't matter. I mean, there are very few places that, <laughs> where, where I go, oh, thank you. So you'll hear stuff like this, which, uh, and this expresses, I think, an ignorance about epistemology and about spiritual anthropology. Someone might get up and say, good morning, everyone. Today we're going to be thinking about, and they announce the theme. Mm-hmm. So, so what did they just tell us worship was about? Now, they don't believe that, but think it's, it's if I can get you thinking about this, I've done my job. Thinking is part of what we do, but but we're tasting and smelling and seeing and uh, how uh, we're connecting to that, uh, not just in a bodily way, but by being still and getting out of our heads, right? Our heads are part of the problem too it's not you know particularly when it's just uh the mechanical sort of ordinary mind doing its thing right so liturgy is designed to get you out of that in part you know you see something you hear something there's a bell there's so all of that in my mind is stuff that's been handed to us a way of understanding uh how we know importance of body and prayer uh, none of that's new. I mean, they were doing that before Jesus, right? It was mm-hmm. stuff that they knew mattered. Mm-hmm. In our uh, last talk, uh, you mentioned a transition from, I think, what you called therapeutic preaching to theological formation. Yeah. Um, and that really resonated with both Tyler and I as we were talking about it. Um, how How do you see maybe the evangelicalism of our context, um, probably most of the listeners' contexts. Um, and why would you describe that as um, therapeutic preaching or therapeutic worship? Um, and how has your transition into a more patristic-influenced theological formation um, changed you, changed your ministry? Hmm. That's a hard question for me because I have... I have a couple of contexts, and they're they're different, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm around a lot of students who have come out of sort of mega church worship, and uh, maybe some who are coming in from First Amarillo or something like that, where there's a little bit more uh, sort of liturgy that connects with the larger tradition, but. But I've got that context, and then I've got this context where these moderates have been sort of really working with liturgy for a long time. And some of them, in spite of that, are are really very, uh, as I've been saying, theme-driven in what they're doing. And, and I think most of that is they haven't developed a theology here. I, I think that's where the patristic tradition has helped me to think in some different ways about those things. And, mm-hmm. and this is not something, it's not like I've sat around with, you know, scholars from wherever our liturgical scholars are. There are not many Baptist folks. <laughs> I did go to Wheaton once with a bunch of Baptists who have been writing about this <laughs> to think about it. And they all kept looking at me like, well, you're the only one that's done this in church. So, <laughs> you know, they're all scholars. So they, they just, and they, they had all written papers and they just drugged me along for like a rabbit's foot or something. <laughs> um, so get the Lord on the side. Yeah. <laughs>
I I do think, and y'all help me with this because y'all are more connected to it. I'm, I'm thinking y'all came out of some of that sort of uh, classic uh, contemporary kind of experience. I would think you both tasted that along the way. So the, the idea of feeling uh, is really important in particularly the desert, fathers and mothers. And uh, sensing is the way they would think of that. So, so there's something going on in the body that's really important, but it's not about emotion. The emotions, in fact, are the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from the evangelical perspective, the idea of getting people jacked up are, are, you know, is something you got to be, you got to really be careful with that. It's not that we don't bring all of who we are into a moment, grief or whatever it is, and into, into worship. But nine times out of ten, our emotions are a part of our problem in terms of, according to the desert fathers and mothers right and these, this is the stuff that takes you down the rabbit hole and you gotta start catching it so you can imagine somebody coming at a my age group where everybody was just taught boy gotta get in touch with your feelings and make sure you you know talk about your everything all the time and act on it and, and you know they're saying slow down you know that's not necessarily maturity now you don't want to ignore them either but that's different than sensation and there is there is a part of bodily worship that where we we will feel things, right? And sometimes that's the only good word to use about it. It might be that we're intuiting things. But um, my hunch is, if you and I, if the three of us were sitting around and they were doing some worship planning with the worship band and the worship team, they really would have in their mind. Uh, thinking about the emotional state of their worshipers and whether or not that's a i don't know i don't want to judge it and say they're trying to be manipulative or or that they're immature and they think they may know more about it than i but i really question that from a, a patristic's perspective right okay. i've already i've already sort of taken the theme driven thing to, to to task um and I've kind of lost your original question in my head. But for, for me, the preaching side of it um, was was a corrective for me in that uh, I felt like there was theological truth that needed to begin to frame uh, the church and ministry in people's lives and I think I had was such a product of my baby boom modernity post-modernity thing where it was just like well there are, I'm, I wouldn't have said it this way but it's kind of it's all about the questions there's even mm-hmm. a quote I have up there right now it's just all about the questions you know and you just you know that that kind of thing at some point I began to think about the way these answers or this thinking, and I love that they would—they would have corrected me on that. I mean, they would have said, "Do you know what cataphatic and apophatic are?" Right. So, but the cataphatic matters too. I mean, this idea of, of being able to name things for people. Hmm. So, we haven't talked about them on the podcast yet, have we? I don't think we've used those words. We may have used apophatic in the past, but I don't even remember. Yeah. Dr. Burleson, what's uh, let's <laughs> so cataphatic and apophatic were important terms to the church fathers, and particularly in the East, uh, they held on to both of them. So cataphatic is with images, and, and this is the calling and capacity we have to try to name what is. You know, we we describe it, we create theories and doctrines, and and. Uh, that are so important you really and i think that's what i'm getting at here you can't really do life without that you're gonna have some you gotta have some frame some something to a post to mm-hmm. tie yourself or you need a flashlight in your hand or something mm-hmm. uh and, and that's the capophatic side of our tradition which is very prominent and almost exclusive in the west mm-hmm. uh the other side of it was the apophatic apophatic side and it's kind of paradox where they would say once you name it you know you've missed it hmm. yeah and 
and that leads you into a kind of humility and a willingness to 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 live with the mystery of things, uh, which we don't do in any good way in the West, inside or outside of the church, for the most part. Quakers and a few others, that kind of thing. So how do you design a liturgy that respects both of those things? And how do you breach hmm. that holds both of those things in it? Uh, so would you so would you say that kind of the more postmodern question everything are exclusively apophatic or, or taking that on too much and not having enough apophatic or do you think it's kind of missed think, both I think they've missed both okay yeah I think it's a it's a it's an early stage of faith it's really important mm-hmm. that sense of let's just blow the whole dang thing up you know <laughs> yeah. and man that feels good to get out from under all that and I think there's a difference between ca- healthy cataphatic sort of the fathers of the church who are those who pray, right? Saying, here's what we think the Trinity is. It's kind of like a dance, right? That's very different than fundamentalism that says, this is it, don't think anything else. And, and that's often what has led to the, we're just going to question everything all the time. Hmm. And and that's kind of where a lot of people stop. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be pretty prevalent today to uh, begin by questioning everything um, and making that a point of theological pride is that you question everything yeah. and then ending with not having any religion at all. Yeah. It's happening in a lot of very public figures right now. Yeah. And more importantly, a lot of other not public figures. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you moved from pastoring there for what you said, 13 years mm-hmm. and now you've been a uh, chaplain at Baylor for how long? Now? Eleven years this week. Okay, oh, wow, so this week. Um, so college students are more of the people who are, you know, getting out from mom and dad's house and starting to question everything. So how do you? You would think so. Oh, and really? You, and you may have. I did, but, but it's t- teach me. It is <laughs> about broader, broader world. Pretty, pretty rare. Really? I, I came here thinking they're all going to be like me. They're all going to be going like <laughs> I don't know what I believe anymore and. Yeah, let's ask questions and sit around and rap, and that's what we did back in the seventies. We rap, <laughs> but it wasn't that kind of rap. I mean, it was it was a different kind of rap. Anyway, um, I don't know what it means for sure. I think it has something to do with the churches they're growing up in. It's generational stuff. I mean, I was a child of the sixties, and you know, we were angry about Vietnam and Watergate and all that. Some of it's personality. Mm-hmm. But it's really rare. In fact, we've got some data on this, and we're take, we're doing another study right now that'll give us even more. Uh, that that basically says: Are you, are you going to be questioning your beliefs in any way? And the majority are, are not going to right now. Mm-hmm. Now that may change by the time they're juniors and seniors. Mm-hmm. Often does, but I don't think it's near as prominent as it once was or typical. And I think everything's getting delayed, too. So there's a book right over here, iGen, that just came out. Mm-hmm. These, this generation, of course, things change in a hurry. But these are not millennials. They're, they're, she's calling them iGen, and the, everything gets delayed. So I've had to adjust my, my thinking about what's possible and how do you administer to somebody who particularly as in chapel and I was at 18 we had an incident this week that was really hard Shane Claiborne was here mm-hmm. and uh, he did what Shane Claiborne always does and four five years ago there would have been people standing up on the stage getting his autograph and, and, and Ryan and I have been hounded for several days mm-hmm. by parents parents calling and saying my child not my student my son or daughter hmm my child is upset. Hmm. So that's the context. Now, I also work with staff and faculty. So, but mostly students. Mm -hmm. So you were going somewhere with that question when I, when I said, Oh, well, just general, that was more about kind of how you answer questions for people who are questioning. And I assumed that most incoming college students would be, would be on that track. But so I keep swinging away at it, and sometimes it happens in the middle of a counseling appointment 
where somebody says, well, I know Christianity is this way or something, and, and, and there's a door open. And mm-hmm. I can say, well, so Christians have thought a lot about that particular issue, by the way, and some think this and some think that. So it tends to be uh, kind of bread and butter stuff mm-hmm. of trying to give some people a broader perspective. They get a little bit of that in Christian scriptures and in, in Christian heritage, too. So so uh, some of them, and I, it's beautiful sometimes. There was one in chapel last year. We're doing a little kind of a dialogue. And she said, I grew up in the church. I was there every time the doors were open. And I knew what I was supposed to know and thought I knew everything. And now after nine months, I realize how much I don't know. And it was very, it was this, yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this person has really reached a kind of place of, of humility, but not in a, like, it was really hard for me. I mean, I was in an existential crisis. She was just like, oh, <laughs> candy shop. <laughs> Got a lot to play with now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I don't want to say it's discouraging, but it has taught me about, to be here 11 years, about spiritual growth and how hard it is for anyone to grow up. Mm-hmm. Why does anybody begin saying, that's not enough. I need something else. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly about pain you know, in their life. And something breaks them open or they're humiliated. Richard Rohr says nothing. Success has nothing to teach you after 30. You know, there's something that's got to happen in somebody's life, mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, for them to want to journey. So I work with people all the time that are very... Uh, really bright folks and yet just there's a kind of contentment you know mm-hmm. and, and and I don't quite get that <laughs> but it's helped me to to uh, I don't know find my way of being at peace with uh, with where they are and respecting that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so something that's your experience wisdom is helping me think through is what's the role of a um so in some sense a pastor a chaplain christian intellectual figure is almost a surrogate intellectual on behalf of the people that they're leading um how does patristic uh, theology impact the way that you do that surrogate thinking on behalf of people and then convey that to them in a way that opens yeah. them up to it. Uh, and if you want to take questioning those assumptions, yeah, go for it. No, I, I begin to feel like I was uh, channeling something. Hmm. Okay. So it became a very spiritual thing. That, that I mean, I, I would read something Maximus the Confessor said, and I felt like this wasn't mine at all. I was just sort of stepping there for a second. And it was, it was flowing. Hmm. And so much so that sometimes I'll go back to a book and read it and think, did I know that? I mean, it, yeah. it was in a sermon along or uh, I don't remember knowing that. <laughs> and some of that's my intellectual limitations, but it, 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 that's what it felt like to me. It, it felt like these sort of the communion of saints, like these are living witnesses. Hmm. It, it was very alive to me. Uh, I loved getting to make, and it still do, getting to make introductions to people to to their tradition. You know, they don't they don't know for the most part. Mm-hmm. Who would you you? Someone comes into you, maybe just a college student mm-hmm. or anyone, just wants to just says, "I really want to read some early church figures." Who who is the first person you'd point them to? Olivier Clement, the roots of Christian mysticism. Now, the title, I think, was a, uh, a publisher trying to figure out how to sell books. <laughs> it really is an, <laughs> an Yeah, it's an anthology of the of the early church. Thinking. Okay. And it's beautifully written. It's just, it's not like some theology books where you're just straining your brain all mm-hmm. night long. I mean, this is like, there's a devotional quality to it. Uh, and he's got several others. That, that are, and I can't think of the names of them 
one may just be orthodox theology or the theology of the desert or something like that. Mm -hmm. I would read him. I think um, Lost Christianity by Jacob Needleman is a fascinating book. He's a a philosopher. I think he's Jewish, but he stumbled into this. It's fascinating, Mm -hmm. this desert theology Mm -hmm. uh, that is ancient and... uh, it, it's just a it's a very interesting read and then there's another one uh, that I haven't mentioned yet <laughs> when you get to be 61 you can't <laughs> remember something when you want it's called I'll send you an email when okay you, <laughs> we'll put it on the show notes if, or something. Yeah. those of you listening shoot me an email and I'll, <laughs> basically it's a it's a Christian anthropology and an understanding of how we're we're made to experience the world and the divine and one another in a way that uh, was commonly thought of in those days. I mean, so it, and we we lost this as a part of modernity. Hmm. I think. All right. Well, thank you. This for, has been fun. Thank you for letting me go on and on and thank you for joining us yeah it's super great conversation it reminds me of of why i'm sitting here i mean i sometimes you you get so bogged down with uh bureaucracy of an institution like this that you you forget why you you thought i'll come do this Mm -hmm. yeah see what see if i can teach this kind of stuff to people or or at least make an impact with it